Yeah, the Bible so. says fall down before the hoary head. So it's a good thing you're in Washington, D.C., and I'm in California. You'd be falling down yes, yeah, I would be. a lot. Indeed. Anyway, you should fall down in your spirit. You should make a spiritual fall down before me now. Okay, <laughs> Seth's going to cut some of this out. This is crazy. <laughs> hey, Seth. I bet he doesn't. <laughs> he'll probably leave it, and he'll probably make this the teaser right now, me telling him to cut it out. Please cut it. Okay, yes. Well, hello and welcome to another Honky Tonkin' episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. We are on episode 61 in our series, uh, which is an age that Ken Hensley himself passed some time ago. But still, we are glad that you're here. <laughs> chnetwork.org if you want to find out more about our work at the Coming Home Network. I'm Matt Swaim, he's Ken Hensley, and we are uh, really getting into one of the scariest concepts um, for each of us, which is the question of infallibility mm. today and, you know, just so you know, we're not going to cover every single possible aspect of this question. We are going to cover the parts that we dealt with on our way towards the Catholic faith from, in your case, Ken, sort of. the Baptist background, and in my case, yeah. from a Wesleyan holiness background. So are you ready for that? Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. And by the way, this is the 61st episode of the On the Journey show, not of this series. No, thank <laughs> This series, this I think, is, uh, I think it's 16th 17. 16th or 17th something like so, that something like that but you yeah. know what my We're, my numbering is not infallible ken so yeah what can i say yeah and i didn't pass up 61 that long ago <laughs> matt thanks a lot how far are you from 61 uh only 19 years i should probably really? not be i should probably not be talking you know so much about your you and your hoary head before which i must bow down yeah, the Bible so. says fall down before the hoary head. So it's a good thing you're in Washington, D.C., and I'm in California. You'd be falling down yes, yeah, a, would be. a lot. Indeed. Anyway, you should fall down in your spirit. You should make a spiritual fall down before me now. Okay, <laughs> Seth's going to cut some of this out. This is crazy. <laughs> hey, Seth. I bet he doesn't. <laughs> he'll probably leave it, and he'll probably make this the teaser right now, me telling him to cut it out. Please cut it. Okay, yes, we're concluding our series on Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium, which we are 16, 17 episodes into. And we wanted to focus a bit on the easily misunderstood issue of infallibility and the Catholic claims regarding infallibility. Okay, this is something, Matt, that sounded to me, and I'm sure to you, it sounded to me like pure insanity when I was a Baptist minister. I mean, I believed in the Holy Spirit's work um, that is, that the Holy Spirit had worked in the apostles and the prophets so that what they wrote down was infallible. I had no problem with that. In fact, it was natural for me to speak of the inspired Word of God contained in Scripture as being infallible, using that word. But I would never, ever have applied the term to my own teaching. I wouldn't have applied it to any denomination's teaching out there. I would not have even applied that word to the great uh, confessions of the Protestant world the Augsburg Confession of the Lutherans in 1530, the Westminster Confession for the Presbyterians in 1646, the Baptist Confession of 1689. There are so many others, too. Um, 
I didn't even name one of the Methodist confessions, but maybe you can clue me in. What's the main Methodist confession? Well, I mean, I wouldn't have named it after anything that Phineas F. Brzee wrote when he was founding the Methodists. I wouldn't have named it, uh, you know, for any of the Stone Campbell movement to which I was attracted to at, yeah. at the end of my journey. I wouldn't have named any of that. As a matter of fact, uh, Ken, I wouldn't have even called Scripture infallible because that word was not really even in my vocabulary. I would have said inerrant, mm. uh, mm-hmm. but that word infallible— yeah, inspired and inerrant, but uh, but that yeah. word infallible would have caused like some sort of like a weird reaction in me, I think. Yeah, like a, you would have had like a sudden itch. Yes, you would have had you would have had <laughs> problems. It would have had boils, anyway. and it would break the local pots and scrape them like Job. Yes, it would have been bad. It would have been very bad. I don't know why we're talking about a very serious subject, and I I feel like I've been smoking pot for the last hour or something, and I know that Sean, I know Seth's going to cut that out. Okay, look. My, my, my point is that it sounded like pure arrogance to me, Matt, when the Catholic Church spoke of the word infallibility with respect to the magisterium, papal infallibility, phrases like that. Total, pure arrogance. And so what we want to look at today is this. What does the church mean when it speaks in this way? What doesn't the church mean when it speaks in this way? And what is the case that can be made for infallibility? Okay, so... Let's begin by defining our terms. In, in this series already, I, I've referred a couple of times to a book by Father Francis Sullivan that I've used called or titled Magisterium, Teaching Authority in the Catholic Church. Well, chapter five of this book, he has titled, and I read it here, he's titled it The Infallibility of the Magisterium in Defining Dogmas of Faith. The Infallibility of the Magisterium in Defining Dogmas of Faith. And here's how he defines, he breaks this down and defines the various terms contained in this title. First of all, the term magisterium, and I'm quoting him, by the magisterium here, I mean the Episcopal College together with its head, the Bishop of Rome. Okay, So the the College of Bishops, the number of bishops worldwide, with its head, the Bishop of Rome. That's what he means by magisterium. And to be clear, you know, somebody will say, well, what about what the German bishops are saying? Or what about what, you know, no, no, it's not what a group of bishops say over here. It's the church. It's what does the church say? Yes. Good. Okay. Second, the phrase, quote, in defining dogmas of the faith. And listen carefully to this. The term in defining dogmas of faith, quote unquote, limits the present question to those solemn judgments in which the supreme teaching authority, an ecumenical council or pope, ecumenical council with pope or pope, exercising its magisterium in the highest degree when it definitively pronounces some truth to have been divinely revealed, and henceforth to be an article of the normative faith of the Catholic community. As I understand it, I'm continuing to read, a non-revealed proposition you know, like the proposition that Peter was crucified under Nero in Nero's circus and that he was buried on the Vatican Hill, a non-revealed proposition, even if it could be infallibly defined to be true, could never be defined as a dogma of faith because only what is in itself divinely revealed can be an object of divine faith. For the present then, suffice it to say that it is only the infallibility of the magisterium in defining dogmas of faith which is itself a dogma of Catholic faith. Okay? All right, run that bias one more time, Ken. Okay, you want to state that uh, for for um, 
Yeah, state that for the people. Well, I'll read the last sentence again, and then we'll comment. For the present, suffice it to say, it is only the infallibility of the magisterium in defining dogmas of faith, which is itself a dogma of Catholic faith. Okay, so what he's saying in this section is this. By by defining dogmas of faith, he's saying what we are saying is that it's we're only referring to those solemn judgments in which the supreme teaching authority of the church, an ecumenical council or a pope, exercising its authority to the highest degree only when it definitively pronounces some truth to have been divinely revealed, okay? It's only when such a pronouncement is being made that this truth is a, a part of God's divine revelation to us, all right? That is what we're talking about. We're not talking about non-revealed propositions like that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States or that Ken Hensley lives in California or as even I said, if those things are true, upside down. right? Yeah. yeah, even if those yeah. things are true yeah. and verifiably true, uh, you know, that, that that's not the, the yeah. realm of, that we're talking about here that the church is like invested with the power to speak on. See, you and I can make infallible statements. I mean, if, if I say that two plus two equals four, I'm speaking a proposition that is infallibly true but it doesn't mean that I have a gift of infallibility or anything like that. So, so even you or I could speak something that's infallibly true. But when we speak of the infallibility of the magisterium, what he's saying here is, is that it is limited to those statements where the, church at, the church's magisterium at the highest level is declaring formally that such and such is an aspect of divine revelation is a truth of divine revelation, and therefore is something that must be believed, that is to be believed as part of the normative faith of Christianity. Okay? You can believe that two now, plus two is five and still possibly make it to heaven. You can't believe that Jesus is just another human being and not God and be within the realm of Christian doctrine. And these are very different right, kinds of right. things. Now, we'll be coming back to this in different ways, so so it'll be said again in different ways. I think we can move on. Uh, finally, his definition of the term infallibility here he is uh, again, Father Sullivan. As I understand it, to believe that the magisterium is infallible in defining dogmas of faith is to believe that when an ecumenical council or pope definitively proclaims something to be divinely revealed, here it is, the Holy Spirit assists the magisterium in such a way as to guarantee that what is defined is true. Infallibility means that the Holy Spirit sees to it that the magisterium does not solemnly oblige the faithful to believe something as divinely revealed, which is not, okay? That's it. It's the belief that the Holy Spirit will assist the magisterium at those times so that it, well, the Holy Spirit will see to it that the magisterium does not solemnly oblige the faithful to believe something as divinely revealed, which is not. That, that's the idea. The Holy Spirit will preserve the magisterium so that the magisterium does not say formally and finally to all the faithful in the world, um, Jesus was not divine. And, and we bind all of you to believe that. The Holy Spirit won't allow that. That's what's being meant. And, and now here's an important qualification. Infallibility does not exempt the defined proposition from any limitation that is compatible with its being true. <laughs> okay. He gives examples. It does not guarantee, for instance, that the statement in which the proposition was enunciated was a fully adequate expression of the divine reality it was intended to express, or that it will always be an appropriate or easily intelligible expression of that meaning. In other words, he's focusing on, on the fact that what is infallible 
is the meaning, the central meaning of the proposition. We're not saying that the proposition defined was said in the best way it could possibly be said. It can never be said better. All the correct words were used. There's no more precise way of stating it. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, and a great example of this in Catholic theology is the dogma of the Assumption, um, which, you know, it's infallibly defined in the 50s Mm -hmm. that uh, Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. But the church doesn't set, set out whether Mary died before this happened or just fell asleep before this happened, or right. what happened, or how. Just that Mary is in heaven, uh, body and soul. Um, that would be an example yeah. of where yeah. there's some realms in which we can explore or ponder mm-hmm. how it actually went down, but we know for by, by a number of criteria that Mary mm-hmm. is body and soul in heaven. Okay, so then the focus is on the meaning of the proposition being true. And nothing else, not that it's said in the best possible way or that it's said completely or nothing else can ever be added to it or take or anything like that, but that the meaning of the proposition is true. So let, so let me sum up then our definitions. To sum up what the church means when it speaks of infallibility, A, we're talking about the magisterium, that is the college of bishops and or the pope. We're not talking, as you said, about any uh, bishop out there floating around or, or any uh, synod or anything like that. We're talking about the magisterium defined as the College of Bishops and or the Pope. B, we're talking about when the magisterium, quote, definitively definitively pronounces some truth to have been divinely revealed and henceforth to be an article of the normative faith of the Catholic community. And then C, we're talking about the Holy Spirit assisting the magisterium at these times in such a way as to guarantee that what is defined is true. Now, let's look at it backwards, if you will, come at it from the other way, because I think that that we can see how many common misconceptions are cleared off the table once we've taken a moment to simply understand what the Catholic Church is actually claiming for itself when it speaks of infallibility. Yeah, and Ken, just to uh, to clear the mm-hmm. air, um, every just about every misconception that you've listed here is a misconception that I had. And there are even Catholics mm. who believe and hold what they believe to be all that the church teaches who have complete misconceptions about what this is and how it works. There are mass going Catholics, daily mass going Catholics who yeah. sometimes have misconceptions about how this whole infallibility thing works. So I don't feel so bad yeah. as a former Protestant uh, for also being confused by this. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, let's list a few of them though. Okay, it's, it, it's common for non-Catholics to think, to imagine that what Catholics believe is that the Pope is like one of the inspired Old Testament prophets, um, that, that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit and he walks around and basically everything he thinks is true, everything he says is true, everything he writes down is true, everything he says in an interview off the cuff is true. This isn't the case at all. But it seems to me, and maybe you can vouch for this as well, that no matter how often Catholics who do understand this repeat, you know, uh, things like, for instance, no, it's only when the Pope is speaking from the chair of Peter, ex cathedra, that is, it's only when he's speaking as universal pastor of the church, formally defining a matter of faith and practice as having been divinely revealed. It's only then, it's only then, no matter how many times this is stated, the misconception reminds, I mean, remains in the minds of most, I would say most Protestants. 
still think this. And it, and it comes out in many, many ways. You know, Pope Francis off the cuff says something in an interview and I'll get 10 emails saying, oh, the infallibility of the Pope, huh? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, because they, they're they not thinking about what the church actually teaches. You can use Francis as an example. You use any Pope in history as an example because I've been hit with quotes yeah. from all of them. Uh, but again, uh, you know, there are, there are ways to divide up the levels of authority within a papal statement, but most of the time, a pope is a human being, and he's not meaning to exercise his authority in a specific and measured way, as you were just saying. It would ha- he would have to be doing it in order for it to be considered an infallible statement. Most of the time, he's just talking because he's a human being, and human beings have conversations. Yeah, yeah they open their mouth and they say things, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the number of infallible papal statements is so few, and w- when it happens, it happens in a formal way in which the Pope is actually declaring, look, I am from the chair of Peter, I'm speaking, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's laid out. It's not uh, opening your mouth. Okay, another one is this, another common misconception. People who imagine that that what Catholics believe is that every decision the church makes is infallibly right or good. You know, the, for instance, the decision to burn someone at the stake in the past or to launch a crusade or to require celibacy of, the, of its priests or whatever. And of course, this isn't the case either. It's not a matter of every decision being made. I run into people who think that the sins of the church, which is kind of a variation on this, who think that the sins of the church historically or the sins of bishops and popes now demonstrate that the Catholic Church's claim to infallibility is a false claim. I mean, it's false because these people are obviously sinning. You know, for instance, I hear this about Peter. You know, Peter sinned. Paul had to rebuke him to his face. And therefore, the idea that Peter was an infallible pope is ridiculous, you know. Or Pope Leo X was selling indulgences at the time of the Reformation. Pope so-and-so uh, had a wife. Uh, he was married to a nun and or, or secretly married or had a child and or he never loved God. Um, bishops who were buying their positions in the Middle Ages. There's a pope you can find who flirted with Arianism. There's another pope who was declared to be a heretic in one way or another. And all of this is taken to obviously demonstrate, just obviously, that the magisterium is infallible being nonsense, that the idea that the magisterium is infallible is pure nonsense. Except that in each of these cases, what we're talking about is a misconception um, of what the church actually says. And I want to make an important distinction here. This is really key. And so um, I would like those viewing and listening listen carefully. It's a key distinction. The church is not claiming that those who make up the magisterium are infallible. It isn't persons that are infallible. It is propositions that are said to be infallible. Propositions of a particular kind, as we defined it a few moments ago. Propositions made under very precise conditions, as we defined it, as Father Sullivan defined it a moment ago. And infallibility or by infallibility, what is being claimed is simply that the meaning of those propositions is preserved from being false by the Holy Spirit. Now, I mean, that's a that's a, an important distinction, an important condition to have in mind. We're not the church is not saying that particular people have a, somehow a gift of infallibility, that they walk around being infallible. What the church is claiming is that certain propositions are infallible meaning that their truth is preserved by the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit preserves these pronouncements um, as being true. 
preserves them from being false. And uh, to quote again from Father Sullivan, what we're talking about are, quote, solemn judgments in which the supreme teaching authority, ecumenical council or pope, exercising its magisterium in the highest degree, see how he defines it so carefully, definitively, definitively pronounces some truth to have been divinely revealed and henceforth to be an article of normative faith for the Catholic Church. He's using every phrase he can think of to make it clear that he's talking about the highest level of magisterium, making the highest level of statement regarding something very, very precisely, precisely regarding something that is being announced to have been part of the divine deposit of faith. It's not talking about anything else. I have to give you a little illustration, something I've thought about many, many times. If I were to claim to you, Matt, that I can read Greek, I mean, imagine I claim that I can read Greek, and then imagine that because I have claimed that I can read Greek, I am mocked every single time it becomes evident that I can't read Lithuanian you know, or, or the language of, the, of Zimbabwe or Bolivia or something like that. That's, a, that's how I feel quite often when I listen to non-Catholics that I talk to complain about the issue of infallibility and the church's teaching on that. Uh, so often it seems to me that many, at least many, simply refuse to allow the church to define its own terms. And, and insist you, that yeah, this was, is what it means. Yeah, and Ken, as uh, as I was reading through your notes and, and thinking about um, you know that question of you know maybe people look back at the church's sketchy past of all the horrible things that you know Catholics have done that. Uh, even priests have done, that even bishops, that even popes have done over the years to say, well, this is proof that you're not infallible. First of all, that's not what we mean by infallible, but second of all, it also doesn't mean that the church can't actually be the church. And I ran into this in, in weird ways, even as an evangelical Protestant, uh, because even though we didn't have a magisterium per se, even though I didn't believe in a visible church per se, I still believed that uh, this mystical body of Christ thing, the body of Christ, the body of all believers, uh, was real despite the fact that people would come to me and say, well, how can Christianity be true if X, Y, and Z Christian out there is doing this? If that Christian right, right. over here is a hypocrite and that Christian over there is a hypocrite, how can it possibly be, how can Christianity possibly be true? And I'd say, no, 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 you don't understand. Christianity isn't true because we're all very good at it. It's true because it's true. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I, I found mm -hmm. myself, as I was reading back through this, uh, Good trying to think about how I'd make similar arguments. And and people, mm -hmm. I would get so frustrated when non-Christians would have similar critiques of Christianity for these same reasons. Even though I would have had these same critiques mm -hmm. against the Catholic Church, I would bristle when people make these accusations <clears throat> against my form of Christianity and say, well, such and such is a, that televangelist is a hypocrite. Therefore, Christianity must not be true. And I'd say, no, wait, wait, wait. You don't measure it by how one particular person executes you know, the plan. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. measure it based on the criteria that Christ set up, and you trust Christ even when human beings fail you. So I found myself making an argument not for papal infallibility within my evangelical context, but at least for some kind of uh, way that the church, as I understood it, even the invisible church, mm -hmm. had this charism of remaining even if its, if, if its members sinned, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's a great analogy. That's that that's that's a helpful analogy because I thought the same things. So uh, though to kind of wrap this together so we can move move forward, um, once we've defined what the church has actually claimed, 
And once we've kind of brushed aside or explained away many of the misconceptions, you can see that the, the church's claim to infallibility is much more limited than what many, many people just sort of assume it to be. You know, it's basically just saying, hey, look, when, when the ordained leadership of the church, the magisterium, all together in an ecumenical council with its head, the Bishop of Rome, and then in certain circumstances, the Bishop of Rome himself, when, he makes, when they make a pronouncement at the highest level, and they basically are telling all Christians in the world, this is divinely revealed, that the Holy Spirit keeps them from stating as divinely revealed something that hasn't been, something that's false. In other words, the Holy Spirit keeps them from leading the entire Christian world into heresy. That's what the claim is, okay? So what is the case for this being true? That is infallibility as the church defines it. Um, for me, the, the arguments in favor of this teaching are many of the same arguments, or they overlap in many respects with the arguments that you and I looked at two weeks ago when we were talking about the Holy Spirit's leading of the church. You know, the Holy Spirit's leading of the church is, 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 is what we're talking about, really, and uh, leading the church in a special way when the church defines a matter of faith and morals for the world, for the entire world. But here are the basic arguments. First of all, I think that the many promises of Jesus to be with his church, to keep his church to the end, that these promises argue for a magisterium that would be able to define the basic teaching of the faith infallibly for the people of God. Um, on the night of Jesus' arrest, as you know, he promised his disciples in the upper room that once he had returned to the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit that would lead them into all the truth. That's John chapter 16. Well, as a Protestant, may, maybe you as well, but I, I took this to mean simply that the Holy Spirit would lead the apostles into the truth, and then they would write it down, and they would hand it to us, and we call that the New Testament. Um, but, but over time, Matt, the question that Catholics were asking began to bother me more and more, and the question went something like this. What is the point of having an infallible book if we have no infallible interpretation of that book? That is, if there's no one on earth who can tell us infallibly what the book is teaching so that Christianity isn't divided up into a million denominations contradicting one another. I mean, that's a good question. What's the point of having an infallible book? Okay, say the Holy Spirit led the apostles into all the truth and they wrote it down and we have an infallible book. But what's the point if no one on earth can tell us infallibly what it's teaching? And, I mean, even to the point to where the church is divided into some who say that salvation, justification is by faith alone, and others say, no, it's faith and obedience persevered into the end. Some say, once you're justified, you can never lose it, so you can rest assured. And others say, no, salvation can be lost. I mean, the doctrine of the church, doctrine of the sacraments, baptism, the Eucharist, on almost every front, the church is divided up. What's the point in that? Okay, but more than these general promises that Jesus made, I think that when I when I point out, the, when I make this, this argument, I'm thinking of the specific promise that Jesus made to Peter in Matthew 16 and then to all the apostles in Matthew 18. That is the promise, and I quote Jesus, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, when I read that, 
and again, I, I never thought about this before, but two questions to sort of flow from this immediately. The first question is this. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Okay, how in the world can heaven promise to put its stamp of approval on whatever the apostles bind on earth unless heaven is going to make sure that what they bind is true? I mean, if it's possible for them to bind on earth something that isn't true, how can heaven put its imprimatur on that? How can it put its stamp of approval on that? Unless the Spirit of God is going to work in such a way that the apostles always bind on earth what is true, how can God bind it in heaven? Okay, that's the first question. And the second question that comes to me is this, and that came to me, is this, is the sort of divine protection that is implied here, is this something that was needed only so long as the apostles were alive? Is, is this a kind of protection that the church hasn't needed the last 2,000 years? And again, I mean, the answer to that just seems to just jump up as, no, we need it, and maybe even more once the apostles are gone. We need that protection. Remember when Jesus, though, describes Peter as the chief steward? And he, he uses that, that image from Isaiah chapter 22 that you and I looked at when we were looking at Matthew 16. The chief steward of the household who has the keys to the household, the one who opens and no one can shut, the one who shuts and no one can open. Well, in Matthew 16, Jesus presents Peter in the role of the chief steward over the church he's going to build. And so again, is this something that was only needed while the apostles are living? I mean, the church needed a chief steward then, but once Peter and the apostles die, we don't need one anymore? We we simply just don't need a voice anymore on earth that can state authoritatively, can bind and no one loose, can open and no one shut. It seemed to me that the promises of Jesus pointed in the direction of a church that would not consist of just a mass of individual Christians doing their level best to read the Bible and pray and decide what they think is being taught, but that it pointed toward a church that would have the ability to speak authoritatively in Jesus' name. And you know, Ken, another question that I ask myself about this whole invalibility thing, so it last to the death, until the apostles died. I was also sort of thinking about the apostles dying. I wasn't meaning to think of it this way, but as though they all died on the same day at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, really understanding that this is a, the, the death of the apostles is something that happens in different places over different periods of time. So if Christ's promise to the apostles was to stick, does it mean like, okay, now we've only got seven apostles left, so we're only you know, at this percentage of strength of the promise, you know, and every time an apostle dies, there's only like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a couple places, wherever the apostles are, wherever the apostle was that died, like suddenly that community no longer has the promise. Uh, you know, it, it beggars a lot yeah. of belief. Like, <laughs> yo, well, we just lost uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. We just lost Bartholomew. You know, we just lost Matthew. So <laughs> I guess, mm -hmm. I guess there goes the promise for our church. You know, it, it, it's a weird thing to kind of think back, like the implications of that sort of thought. But it was what I sort of held to in the abstract. Yeah, and and I don't think you can it's, you can't trace it out that way. I, I guess it's best just to state it in the basic way that what we thought, well, what I thought was that that there was this kind of authority, there was this kind of safety, the Holy Spirit leading during the apostolic age. But one, but then they wrote it down. So it, it's like at a certain point. It just doesn't exist anymore except in what they wrote. 
you know, and it just becomes sola scriptura. It becomes what they wrote and, and nothing more. But, but again, then, I think that the promises, to kind of sum that up and move forward, I think that the promises that Jesus makes, especially the promise he made to Peter and the apostles, that whatever they bind on earth would be bound in heaven, um, Im- implies the kind of church, the kind of magisterium that could define infallibly matters of faith and practice. It doesn't imply or it doesn't bring to your mind the idea of a church where you just have millions and millions of individuals carrying their Bibles around and reading it and praying and uh, figuring it out, you know, not at all. Okay, the second argument is this that I bring. of The example that we're given in Acts 15, again, this argues for the kind of authoritative magisterium the Catholic Church believes in. The example we're given, and we've gone over it a number of times, a theological dispute arises, some believers from the Pharisees in Jerusalem are saying, no, in order for Gentiles to be saved, they have to receive circumcision, they have to become Jews, they have to begin to live under the Mosaic Code. The apostles and the elders meet in Jerusalem, we refer to that as the Council of Jerusalem, it's recorded in Acts 15. They decide the question, they issue a letter, which is reads a lot like a, well, it's, it's a letter, but it's a decree, right? And they view this letter as having been inspired, if you will, or they view the decision they come to as being the decision of the Holy Spirit. It seemed to the Holy Spirit and to us is, is what they is the words they use in the letter. And when this letter is delivered to the churches, I think mo- importantly, we read in Acts 15.31 that the Christians, quote, rejoiced at the exhortation, unquote, okay? So, that's the kind of church they, they, that you see at that point. They meet in council, they decide, they send a letter, the letter is read, and the believers rejoice. The believers receive it as authoritative and binding, and they rejoice. And again, Matt, as a Protestant, I would have read this, and I would have said, oh, sure, this is how things were during the time of the apostles, but not now. Setting aside your illustration here of when did, when did they all die, what cities were they in, you know, what cities were they in when they died? Does their authority, like, like somehow is it diluted like in percentages along the way? Okay, but I would have said, that's how it was when there were apostles, no more. Now it's sola scriptura. Now we have the Bible, and when a dispute arises now, we may meet in council, but we meet in council to search the Bible, and if we can agree, well and good. If we can't agree, and we believe the issue is important, Welcome, uh, welcome another denomination. Welcome another sect. Welcome another split in the church. Well, the first to write a systematic treatment on the issue of the councils of the church was the ninth century monk and bishop Theodore Abu Kura. And in his treatise, he looked at Acts 15 and he argued from, from Acts 15 that bishops meeting an ecumenical council could rely on the Holy Spirit to preserve them in the truth. And his reasoning was a reasoning that we've kind of touched on already here today. His reasoning was, after all, the decisions that are reached at this ecumenical council are decisions that are going to be binding on all the faithful. And the Holy Spirit certainly wouldn't allow them to bind all Christians to something that is false. And therefore, the leading of the Holy Spirit could be relied on. It could be trusted. And again, I think the question arises, as the way I put it, is the kind of authoritative magisterium that we see functioning in Acts 15, 
Is this something that was needed only during the time of the apostles? Um, is this not something that is needed even more after the apostles and to the end of, of this world? And doesn't that argue then that the Holy Spirit would preserve the magisterium when they meet in ecumenical council with their head, the Bishop of Rome, and when they pronounce at the highest level such and such is divinely revealed and is a part of the Christian faith? And again, and this is, I don't, I don't want to make too light of this because I have friends who are pastoring in denominations, various denominations that are undergoing uh, real live heartbreaking schism at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because they meet in council and there is no, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There is, it seemed good to 55% of the voting membership in this particular mm-hmm. convention. And the other 45%, you know, for lack of a better word, take their magisterium and go home, right? They, they go and they, they're like, well, obviously, that's 55% of us who apostatize. Or the 55% would say, that, well, there's 45% who are no longer in the truth. Or they're in a little bit of the truth, but we have the fullness of what it means. But, it, you know, even with that, you probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought, it, you know, when I was in those situations that we had the fullness of it. I would just thought, we're right about this issue, and we're not going to budge on it. And so on and on and on and mm-hmm. on it goes. Um, would Jesus have built that kind of, I mean, just it's like time bomb after time bomb after time bomb built in the system. All that has to happen is for anybody to have a disagreement over anything. It doesn't even matter what it is. In one church in the town that I went to college in, it was over what musical instruments should be used in worship. Is that enough to say, all right, we're well, it's enough for the Church of Christ, for sure. Right, and the Church of Christ, what was yeah. the Church of Christ? It came from the Restorationist movement who said, we're tired of all the denominationalism. We're not even going to be a denomination. We're going to get together around the Bible. When a dispute comes up, we're going to the Word. Where Scripture speaks, we speak. Where Scripture is silent, we're mm-hmm. silent. And that couldn't even last. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, heartbreaking. It's new... heartbreaking. Yeah, I was going to say that when your denomination got together, too, and had this conference where 55% went one way and the, the other 45 went the other way, that, was, that wasn't even taking into account the fact that there were a number of other denominations and other conferences meeting and deciding other things. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, the, so the promises of Jesus, I think, argue in the direction of there being a magisterium with the ability to infallibly state you know, the, the basic dogmas of the faith. And then the second argument that we just made is Acts 15 gives us that that example in the New Testament that this is the kind of church that existed and this is the kind of church that would need to be existed still, I mean, would need to exist still. The, the third argument that I put down here is this, the assumption throughout the New Testament that the church should be one church. That assumption argues, in my mind, for an authoritative magisterium again. And we all know the prayer of Jesus in John 17, I do not pray for these only, that is referring to his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So all believers, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That sounds like spiritual oneness there, but then listen, I in them, thou in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. I mean, he's praying for unity, that, that these believers will be one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree 
and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then there's Ephesians 4 that I've hit you with a couple of times and I've talked about, where Paul explains that Jesus gave to his church pastors and teachers in order to build the church up in unity. And then he says, quote, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful wiles. And I've shared with you a couple of times how along the way, as I was thinking about the Catholic faith and reading this passage, I was suddenly hit with the idea that unless there was some authoritative magisterium that was pronouncing authoritatively a particular body of doctrine, that what Paul envisions here would be impossible, Matt. It would just be impossible. And yeah. or stated another another way, Christ gives pastors and teachers to his church to build them up in unity so that we're not blown about by every wind of doctrine. Well, if there's an authoritative body of doctrine that they all are bound to, then whether this pastor teacher, whether he's in Iraq, whether he's in Vietnam, whether he's in Canada, whether he's in California or New Jersey or D.C., when, he, when they teach, they will be building up the church in unity, as Paul says here. But if every pastor and every teacher scattered all around the world, if they are not bound to any particular body of doctrine, but are free to study and decide, hey, I'll be a Methodist, or hey, I think the Baptists are right, or you know, the Presbyterians, or the Lutherans, the Nazarenes, the Anglicans, then Paul's vision here is impossible because the pastors and teachers will come to different conclusions as we see all around us. They will teach their people contradictory, contradictory doctrines as we see all around us, and the people of God will actually be carried they will be, to use Paul's words, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine with the pastors and teachers being the very forces blowing them about. I mean, this is, just became so crystal clear. This is what I see out there in the evangelical and the Protestant landscape. And this is what we see sometimes even in the comments on these videos, right? Uh, that is, the very, the very people who have the strongest belief in their particular f flavor of Christianity are the ones who are doing the most fighting with one another on this question. And it's clear, I mean, just to go back to Ephesians 4 that you were just quoting about, you know, being tossed by every wind of doctrine, back up a few verses where Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 4, make every effort. It sounds uh, very much like what Jesus says in John 17, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. The vision was never, you know, a coalition never, yeah. of churches who have like various takes on it, but ultimately at the end of the day, we all love Jesus, so it's fine. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. He's talking about something much, much more deeper, uh, much more deep and much more unified uh, on uh, not just that level of we all love Jesus, so it's okay, mm -hmm. but th on every level possible, unity. So, so if the promises of Jesus to be with the church and to keep the church, if, if those promises argue for there to be infallibility at some level, if Acts 15 argues for it, if the assumption of the New Testament that the church should be one church and with Christians in agreement, if that argues for it, um, fourthly, finally, the, the argument that I put down here is this. You and I have talked a lot about this too, how sola scriptura unraveled in our lives. We've, we had a whole series on that. 
That is the idea that the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else is all that is necessary. Well, for me, Matt, as I was coming to see and believe that Sola Scriptura wasn't scriptural, that it wasn't historical, that it didn't work, that it wasn't even logical, as I was coming to, to believe that and to see that, I realized I was simultaneously coming to see that the alternative would have to be an authoritative church. I mean, there'd have to be someone, you know, and again, like I said last week, uh, you know, even if it's you, Matt, you know, it's a sola swamium, and I, I think you, you said, okay, even, even if it was you, I was realizing there has to be some authority on earth to state this, because if there is no binding authority on earth, then logically it's every man in his Bible. It's every woman in her Bible. It's everyone praying, everyone studying, everyone figuring it out for themselves. So I, I was simultaneously, as Sola Scriptura goes down, I was simultaneously realizing that the only alternative, really, was an authoritative church. For the church to be one church, there simply had to be, and there has to be, an authoritative magisterium, at least when stating the basic fundamental dogmas of the faith, that is, our faith and morals, um, for there to be certainty of faith, and I mean in the minds, in the soul of any particular Christian, for there to be certainty of faith that what they know and what they have been taught is true, so that they're not being blown about by every wind of doctrine and every wave being tossed up and down. There had to be, and there has to be, a magisterium that can infallibly define the core dogmas of, of the doctrines of faith and morals. And what I was finding, Kent, in, in my aspect of this search, so uh, there was a point towards the end. Well, in the first part of my Christian life, I thought we were all just in different churches as a matter of taste. Like certain people like mm -hmm. certain kind of music, some certain people had different kinds of personality types, and you just worshiped wherever it was that your personality type fit best. I came on uh, into Bible college, mm -hmm. working at a family Christian store, and seeing, no, there are real theological differences. And then that really upset me. And so I wanted to distill down, like, what is the core thing that we can get everybody to coalesce around? which is basically, that's when I realized I just wanted to start my own denomination and have every Christian in the world join it, right? And so you you get into all these kind of like phases. This, these are some of the phases mm -hmm. that I went through, and, and that's, a, that's a basic chronology of it. But what I began to see is that in the absence of an authoritative magisterium, you were left with your authority coming from a compelling personality. So mm -hmm. the alternative mm -hmm. of a authoritative magisterium is whoever's the loudest and most influential uh, will will carry the day. In your life. Yeah, in your yeah, moment, in, in time, and in your town. Yeah. That's what will carry the day. And and so it comes back to this whole question about, um, again, and I've been in conversations like this where I, someone will say, well, you know, it seems like this passage could say this, but it also seems like it could say this, so who really knows? Well, it doesn't matter what the passage seems like it could say. What matters is who has the authority to say, this is what it does say. Yeah, right? this is the doctrine. Right. Yeah. This is what this, it does this say. This is what it true. Not because I'm yeah. smart or clever or good looking or I preach a good sermon, but because it was trusted to me. Just like Paul said, he entrusted to Timothy and Timothy was supposed to guard and trust and pass on mm -hmm. to somebody else. I mean, who has the authority, not who has the microphone. You know, this is how it kind of boiled down for me, Matt, is that, um, or this is the way I kind of put it together in, in my mind. When I watched Jesus and the apostles establishing the church in the New Testament, 
They, they certainly seem to be establishing a church that will speak in his name with authority. I don't think anybody would doubt that. Then, secondly, when I looked at the church actually functioning in the New Testament, it was a church that could speak authoritatively in his name. And so, in a nutshell, this is kind of how it came down for me. The difference between Catholicism and Protestantism is this. Catholics believe that the church that we see Jesus establishing in the New Testament, and the church that we see actually functioning in the New Testament, is the church that Jesus intended to continue. It's, it's the church that did continue in the world, and it's the church that still exists, whereas Protestants don't. That, that's really the bottom line, and I, as a Protestant, didn't. That is, as a Protestant, I was okay with the idea, I was okay with the idea that that church that authoritative church that was established and functioning in the New Testament, that church no longer exists. I, I was okay with that. It existed during the time of the apostles. It doesn't exist anymore. Since then, it's the Bible. Since then, it's individual believers doing their level best to find the correct denomination and to associate themselves with the, with the correct domination, denomination. Yeah, I assumed. You know, and, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I go assumed. Ahead. Go ahead. I assumed uh, that the early church was a lot like the churches that I was in when we were going through pastoral transitions. Mm -hmm. Such and such was a much beloved pastor in this parish, but now they're retiring or they've been reassigned. What's going to happen mm -hmm. to this church now? I guess we'll survive if we get the right preacher. And that's not how the early church thought, right? <laughs> they were like, no, we're going to survive no. anyway because we've got the deposit of faith. Um, yeah, it's a completely, no, it was a completely foreign mindset to me. Yeah. And, and when I've made these arguments, sometimes people have said to me, hey, listen, we have authoritative confessions of faith. We have authority. Don't make it sound like it's just everybody with their Bible. Except that those, those authoritative confessions of faith, all that means is that there was a body of people who agreed with one another and put their agreement down on paper. Yeah. And yet the agreement that the Lutherans put on paper is not the same as the agreement that the Methodists put on paper or the Presbyterians or the Baptists. So or the non-denominationals put the on their website. They didn't even put it on paper, right? Some of them. Yeah, they yeah just it's on a website. On yeah, a website. yeah the, the church's, the independent congregation's statement of faith. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just what people who agreed with one another put down on paper. That's not the kind of authority that we're talking about. It's not the kind of authority that is needed if there's to be one church. So I can only speak for myself, but I couldn't do it any longer. Um I didn't really trust my, I didn't trust myself, Matt, to do it any longer. The, the entire way of thinking that I had grown with and that I was used to, that all the various denominations had as their, as their way of thinking, it, it, just, it, it didn't look anything like what I saw in the early church fathers and Ignatius of Antioch or St. Irenaeus, Ambrose, Augustine, on and on and on. It became clear to me, really, that what Newman said was true, that is, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. The, the Christianity that I knew as a Baptist was simply different. It was simply a different animal from the Christianity that is described in the New Testament and that existed in the world really up until the time of the Reformation or the, the pre-Reformation movements like the Cathars and the Albigensians and whatnot. It was a different animal. And um, that's pretty much why I became Catholic. I just realized what I am in is not the same thing. And even yeah. if I don't have all the questions settled, even if I don't have down to the fine points, I need to be in the church that I see Jesus establishing, 
that I see functioning in the New Testament, that I see picked up, filling the Roman Empire, deciding all those important issues at the councils, at the early councils. That's the church that I need to be in, not not one that has broken off and is out there floating. Yeah. You and in my uh, sola suema formulation of uh, Christianity, as my I went mm-hmm. from medium-sized denomination to smaller and smaller denomination till where I you know, accidentally founded a house church and until we were, ultimately it was just me, you know, and trying to assemble the best that I could out of Christian history. I found that the more that I was going uh, back in Christian history and finding the best nuggets of what I thought was truth that I could assemble into this one Christianity that would reconcile everybody, the more I realized that I was just taking Augustine or Chesterton or Aquinas or Catherine of Siena and remolding them into my image instead of thinking these people all think right because they're all part of the same church. I'm not smart for discovering these things and getting Catherine of Siena to back me up with a proof text. Catherine of Siena and the church are smart, and I'm just discovering it, right? Because they have, they're have they coming from a legitimate place. I no longer quote Augustine because I think he helps prove my point. I quote Augustine because if we were sitting, if we were going to church in the same town, we'd be sitting in the same building on Sunday mornings, right? Because it all flows out mm-hmm. of this one body of Christ as it was intended to be. And um, I would rather not have had to have such a hard time coming to that conclusion because it was a rather sharp blow to my ego. Actually, it was several repeated sharp mm-hmm. blows to my ego. Um, but at the end of the day, it's freeing. It's freeing to know that there is an authority you can trust instead of going through and doing a Google search for churches in your town and saying, well, what if this is the one? What if this is the one? Um that's exhausting. Where will I go when my pastor retires? Where will I go when we get a new music minister? Mm-hmm. Where will we go if the youth group changes leadership? Instead of saying, I'm going to go where the truth is and where the truth has always been. Yeah, it's a. it was humiliating, I can tell you that much, um, in my own life. I, to didn't know you had a ha- I didn't know you were even starting your own house church. Well, I didn't mean to. And if you ask the people that were involved in it, I think they meant to, and I did not. And so, but uh, hmm. we didn't mean to answer every single point and objection that someone might have about the doctrine of papal infallibility, or or even what it means to say that the church uh, is indefectible, or or that the church is even one holy Catholic and apostolic. Can't answer all those questions, um, even in seventeen episodes, but. Hopefully you can still join the conversation. Please come visit us at chnetwork.org, the Coming Home Network. Please come visit our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. In the meantime, Ken Hensley, this has been a fun, fun series, and uh, look forward to doing more with yeah, you down the road. it has been good. Yeah, well, we'll talk soon, and we'll be back together recording in a week, I think, probably. Probably. Okay. All right. Good Until then, thanks, everybody. <laughs>